time lapse. This is State of Demand Gen. Hey everyone, welcome back to the State of Demand Gen podcast. This is your host, Chris Walker. And today I am very happy to introduce back, I think for the second time virtually and one time in real life, um, the owner of JW Advisory and one of my very good friends, Justin Welsh. Chris, great to be on, man. Great Justin, to uh, be chatting with you again. Great to have you back on here. I feel like it's just, uh, you know, time flies. I don't know when the last time we were on. It feels like it was just yesterday, but uh, as we talked through it before the episode, it felt like it was at least eight months ago, which is yeah. wild. Time is yeah, flying. Great to be back. And so, I, you know, I think anyone who's on LinkedIn has seen you around, um, which is part of what we're trying to talk about today. And so I think we're going to kind of go in one direction here, which is just like your overall content formula. I want to like really dig deep. I think that we share a lot of the same um, consistencies, but you also do things a little bit different than I do. And so would love to kind of like learn a little bit more to help the listeners. I think that when I look broadly, whether it's a CEO or a marketing manager that's trying to help their brand or anything in between, there's a couple places where they fall down and there's one where you're very good that they fall down, which is consistency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into that. People think like, I don't have enough time. What is the ROI of this? I don't know what to say. <clears throat> like how do, Talk me through, maybe if you take us back to like when you might have been in that seat, like how did you get from there to now high power output? Let's hear about it. Yeah, I think in the beginning, you know, I had this hypothesis that getting some attention would be good, right? Would be good for my, be good for my brand or or whatever business that I was going to build in the future. So I started attempting to write and I'm naturally not a very good writer. And so I, I actually spent a long time trying to write what I would consider useful or interesting content. And so I would sit at my computer and spend an hour, an hour and a half, like redoing and redoing. And and it became really problematic. And I, I recognized that in order to create more consistently that I would need to be a bit more formulaic, right? It's, it's a lot like building sales teams at my previous business. There has to be a system and a process. And so over time, what I tried to do was look at what was resonating with my audience, what was getting high engagement, what was causing discovery calls for my business, so on and so forth, buying my products. And I kind of isolated like three or four specific pieces of content and then started to break them down into formulas. So I'll give you an example of like high, high output, Chris. Um, I just recently shared a formula that's working for me, which is I, I generally want to teach something. I like to be useful, something informative mm-hmm. with every piece of content that I create. And so I start by just saying, what do I want to teach? And I might write down two or three things like this piece of information, this piece of information, and this piece of information, three pieces of information, all focused on the same thing. And then I'm like, okay, cool. The next thing that I have to do is make sure that people see this. And so I move to the first part of the content, which is like, how do you break patterns? How do you get people to stop scrolling on their cell phone and pay attention? And so I have a small formula that I use there as well. And then I actually move to the end of the content where I say, great, we've broken patterns. We've, we've taught something. And now what do I need to do? I need to get them to engage. And I don't want them to go reread the entire post. So I summarize. I summarize in one or two quick lines so that they don't have to scroll back up and reread everything to add, add commentary. They're just like, oh yeah, here's the last line. This encapsulates everything that I just spent you know, three minutes reading. And they can instantly start participating in the conversation. So this formula of like a sandwich, right? Like the meat in the middle and the bread on, bread on either ends, for me, has just allowed me to quickly think of something, quickly write, and then add the top and bottom. And I keep going. I can do five or six or seven in an hour, and then I'm done for a week. That's quite the system. So um, talk me through how you decide 
what information, right? Like the, the initial point was, I want to get this, I want to be useful. I want to get this piece of information across. I think that's honestly where a lot of people get stuck. Like they can't even get to the sandwich meat or whatever. (laughs) They can't even get to the sandwich meat because they don't know what their, what the starting point is. So how yeah. do you have like a brainstorming methodology or something like that? Um, yeah, it's interesting. So I, I I created something that I call the content matrix, which is I actually share with my audience, but like I, I built it originally for myself. So anything that I build for myself, I just share because I think it's useful. Mm-hmm. And so it, it just has, you know, two axes, right? One on the left is, is what I consider my pillars and my core concepts. So pillars are essentially, um, you know, my, so let me give you an example. I want to help people build online, right? That's, that's something I'm really focused on right now in my career is helping people get side businesses or solopreneurships off the ground. And so my, my pillars are just, what do I think people need in order to do that successfully? Here's four pillars. They need an idea. They need an audience. They need to prove out their expertise and they need a product. So my pillars, idea, audience, proof, product. Now, inside of each of those four pillars, I have strong opinions. It's the internet. You have to be interesting when you talk and say things, right? You can't be vanilla middle of the road and you can't be crazy. You have to be interesting. And so to each of those pillars, I attach strong opinions, like things that I truly believe that I think are um, not middle of the road or vanilla or boring. And so what I'm left with is four pillars and maybe 12 to 16 strong opinions. And then across the top of the matrix, I take those four or five content sort of uh, structures that I talked about in the beginning and I just matched them, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, take this strong opinion, match it with this structure, take this strong opinion, match it with this structure. Now it's not as easy as just glancing at it, but what it does is it gives me something to work off of. That's not a blank piece of paper, right? Mm-hmm. I hate staring at a blank white piece of paper and trying to think of what do I write today? So that formula helps me kicks my brain into thinking. And then once I pick something, I, I execute the formula. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done some, mine's a little bit different, but I'll share it with the listeners, which is basically, I talk to a lot of smart people like Justin in formats like this. I also spend a lot of time interacting in comments on LinkedIn, which then create topics that I can talk about because it's all recorded or somehow logged. And if it's in a comment, I'll screenshot it, which then gives me a backlog of different topics that I could talk about that are relevant because I talked about it with somebody that was smart or I engaged with someone that was on LinkedIn. So it's a, you use the matrix. I use this little thing. Both of them can clearly work. Um, we're going to go in a little bit. I'm going to take a tangent just because there's something you, you said that I thought was interesting. So you're doing this uh, to help solopreneurs and things like that, but you also have a ton of experience in B2B SaaS. Mm-hmm. And so um, I just want to, as a thought experiment, talk through this with you. Do you think that this could work for a SaaS, like the common playbook in SaaS is build a product, get a couple customers, raise a seed or a series A, and then build an outbound team. Should companies be rethinking those th- two or three steps and start moving to something like this? Or do you feel like it's not the same? No, I, I feel like it, it, it can be dependent on sort of whom your end user is, but I think you can see some really really good companies doing this, right? Let's, let's take an example on, on Twitter. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the company Fast. It's mm-hmm. um, built by Dom Holland and Allison Bar Allen. And it's all over they, the news, yeah. Yeah, it's all over the news, but it's also all over social media, right? Mm-hmm. Because when they, they have a great idea and they're looking to sort of disrupt the payment space and sure, could they have built a team and called a bunch of, you know, e-commerce merchants and things like that? Of course they could. Um, could they do like traditional inbound marketing? And I'm sure they do, by the way, I'm sure they do both of these things. It's not whether it's not, you know, 
either this or that. It's a, a, another play in your playbook. They went out and they hired Matt Kobach, who has an incredibly humongous following on Twitter and is an extremely influential you know, thought leader, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as he started talking about fast, then fast is all over Twitter. It was that fast, right? No, no pun intended. <laughs> you, see, um, you see companies like Gong and Outreach doing it really well, right? Mm-hmm. Because their buyer, the B2B you know, salesperson or sales leader is, is there on social media actively consuming content. So you see people like Devin Reed and Sarah Brazier, Max Altshuler, Scott Barker over at Outreach. You see all these folks online and sure, they're building something for themselves personally, but in the end, like it's top of mind. No, no offense to Sales Loft. It's a great company, but like when I think sales engagement or enablement, like the first company that comes to mind is Outreach because I see them more frequently. And totally that's, that's, wor- that's worth something as a former you know, revenue executive. Totally agree. Um, so I brought something like this up on a demand gen live two days ago. And so I think it'd be interesting to spitball on this one, which is that um, I don't know all the details about hiring Matt Kobach, but what I got from what you said is that they hired somebody that already had a very large audience. And so my part of my position on this is that it would be worthwhile to pay way more for the exact same employee that has that because of the distribution and trust that's already built, as well as a um, an already proven content and distribution model, what do you think about that? I think I think to the extent that you can hire someone who has a built-in audience, especially an audience that um, includes the people who make decisions to buy your your product you'd be a fool not to go out and and start building an army of those people, right? <clears throat> Look at a company like Gravy online, right? Um, Casey Graham is, is sort of building an army of people that are popular on LinkedIn and their, their company is growing extraordinarily rapidly. I mean, I look at myself and I'll say this in the most non-braggadocious way possible, but I'm a one-man show writing one single piece of content each morning on LinkedIn. And over the last couple of years, people will have read my stuff 33 million times. That has to be valuable to a company, right? There are other people like me that who just bring a built-in audience and bring what is essentially a built-in revenue stream mm-hmm. to, to a product. And so I've proven, and again, I say this in the least arrogant way possible, I can write a post about a company's business and generate business that day. And so why not get someone full-time on your team who can do that every day, multiple times a day underneath mm-hmm. your brand? I think that's a, a winning move. We're starting to look at it for marketers. <clears throat> I think def- I think com- I think it's the next I think it's the next thing, right? I think like we talk about this transition from the customer not knowing much and so your salespeople really had to educate them and then sort of last decade was, you know, the customer became more educated via the internet and so they knew more about your company by the time they got on the demonstration. To me it's going to be more trust and emotion in in this decade, right? And I think that um for example, uh, I don't know Matt personally. I don't know a lot of the people that I interact with online personally, but if they said, if I was making a choice between two companies and they said, this is the better company, that would mean a lot to me. That would mm-hmm. sway me very highly in one direction because you're emotionally involved because you see them frequently and you trust them because you see other people, you know, appreciating their content and you form a natural bond and trust online, which I think is interesting. Yeah. So that kind of segues into a different topic. Again, not on the agenda because I love how this stuff turns out. Um, I talk a lot about the idea of bringing some style of influencer marketing into B2B. 
and I talk very clearly and loudly about why companies don't do it in B2B is because they are too transactional, right? They don't want Matt Kobach. They don't want to pay Matt Kobach to post something. They want to pay Matt Kobach $100 per lead. Yeah. Um, and nobody like Matt Kobach, I'm not, I can't speak for Matt Kobach, but I imagine nobody like him or her want to get $100 for every lead they send you. They are creating massive awareness for your brand and you need to understand that at a brand level, not at a transactional sales level. I'm really, I'm really trying to push hard for people to get over this hump. Like if you sell the CFOs to have the CFO of American Express, which happens to be one of your top enterprise customers, post a video for five minutes about how they figured out a specific feature in your product that helped them accomplish a goal. And they also have an audience of a bunch of enterprise, you know, Fortune 500 CFOs there. I think that is a $10,000 plus buy. I think it's worth yeah. $10,000. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I can't imagine um, wanting to be transactional on an awareness level. Right. <laughs> I, I think that, um, that awesome. if I were, if I were, if I had some, if I was creating a business and I wanted to get the business out in front of as many people as possible, I know three to five people that I would approach instantly online and say, how can we work together to get you talking about my brand and to somehow like install a tracking URL and pay people like they're affiliate marketers. Uh, when in fact, <laughs> they're, they're actually going out in, in greatly increasing the awareness of my brand to a, to a trusted audience that they have spent time and energy and trust building mm -hmm. to say, I, I'll give you 50 bucks a pop. It seems extraordinarily disrespectful. And, and nobody my, will do it opinion. because you compromise the trust and credibility that you've built with your audience by doing shit like that. So nobody will do that because their audience is more value than valuable by far than the 50 bucks they're going to get for your affiliate program. <laughs> Create awareness through people who have significant trust with their audience and then build transactional infrastructure underneath, underneath mm. that right? It's, it's their job to create the awareness. It's your job to put the infrastructure underneath it that actually moves folks from being aware of your product and in, into a buying mode. That's mm -hmm. your job, right? Mm -hmm. The, the influencer for, again, lack of a better term, it's a term I don't love. Me either. You know, it, it's it, their job is to create the awareness. And once they've done that, their job is done. It is your job to build mm -hmm. the infrastructure. Do you think that part of the the trust and credibility that you had predicted over the next decade has anything to do with the fact that a lot of products are starting to become quite similar. Like I don't, I've never used one of these tools. So, but I, I think that gives me an interesting perspective to me. I don't have any a clue whether sales loft or outreach is actually a better product. I actually think that it's quite a subjective call. Mm -hmm. Um, and when, because the products are so similar and it's so subjective, it actually leads into the trust, credibility, brand awareness play that you had mentioned. Do you think the product, the, the fact that products are starting to become very similar and starting to conversion themselves has to do with anything? Differentiation is going away. Yeah, I, I do. I actually was talking about, I can't recall with whom um, this recently, which is there are two things that I think start to differentiate commoditized products. One is awareness in the market and, uh -huh. and trust. And so that that's the top of funnel that we're talking about with some of these folks who can go out and make a massive difference at an awareness level. So uh, if you have two companies that are uh, exactly equal in product and, in you know, uh, 
money raised and, and things like that. You, you, if there's just a feature set side by side that looks exactly the same, the the company that generates awareness through trusted you know folks with an audience is going to win in the top of funnel. And then it's it's the back end post sale that I think is the second thing that that matters in commoditized businesses. I think people, I think companies generally undervalue customer service, and I think like. I I was recently looking at two pieces of software. They were pretty damn similar <laughs> and I could easily interact with one software's customer service department. And, and um, the other one I had to go through like a, a digital knowledge base where if I couldn't find my answer, I had to submit a ticket and then it took like three. Mm-hmm. It, the feature difference is so slim that why would I spend my time on the, on the ladder? And so I think those two things are really critical in a commoditized, you know, industry. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Top level awareness for a sales-led B2B SaaS organization, buyer experience. We've mm-hmm. had several episodes here where like the products are not that much different. If you make it hard for me to buy, I've definitely bought products that were not my top choice because the top choice had a terrible buying experience. And then lastly, on the customer experience, which you had mentioned there, customer service or overall customer success in certain organizations, which then drives success through the product, word of mouth that fuels everything afterwards. Yeah, so awareness, great- awareness, and then word of mouth from customers. I think are the two two levers there that get pulled. Yeah, great, great point. Um, you know, I think frictionless buying is is really critical. Like you mentioned, I think that's probably a third thing that I, I didn't think of. But yeah, the idea of like. I don't know. We're in a we're in a situation. We've been in this situation for many years. So what I'm going to say is not going to be super mind blowing. But like you know, it's we're in a gimme gimme kind of uh, economy, right? If I want to get a piece of software for my business, I don't want to have to. Sometimes I don't want to talk to somebody. Don't mm-hmm. force like let me buy a, a product the way that I want to buy it. If I want to buy it by putting my credit card down, if I want to buy it by talking to somebody, if I like, there should be options available that meet buyer needs. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like I get it. If you have a lightweight product that's ten dollars, you can't employ a sales team. Like I understand restrictions, but in the in from a ho- overall sort of holistic standpoint, you know, allow people to buy as quickly and as easily as they want. You interact with a lot. I mean, I think you advise and then obviously are interacting with them through that. Um, companies that are B2B SaaS, maybe SMB, so lower ACV deals. I don't know what the upper end of the companies that you work at, but what I'm looking at is like, I would say 30K ACV plus that are primarily sales led for a lot of different reasons, complexity, customization, or whatever other things that they would say to do that. Where do you think that the companies that are in the upper end of that spectrum, let's say 30K to 100K, which is like on the cusp of being able to do product led, but is probably pretty far away. Do you see them moving to that? Do you see them building a a more lightweight, like $99 a month entry level product has kind of moved them in? How do you, what do you see in those dynamics? Yeah, I don't know to, to be quite honest. Like my, my expertise is actually, it's interesting. My expertise kind of goes from one to to 30,000. So like that, that's where I spend. I'm I'm highly transactional in the, in the SaaS world. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I I don't know if, if some of these larger companies, will move downstream and, and build lightweight, um, you know, more easily consumable products. I think what I would probably think about is the higher, well, that doesn't make sense. No, I would think if, if your industry potentially has like a smaller TAM, right? So if you're playing in a really high like enterprise space and you don't have a tremendous amount of customers that can pay that particular price point, I think ultimately if the company is really successful and starts to reach the the end limit of their TAM, then it might be an interesting play to go downstream and say, you know, if we open this up or open up a part of our feature set to a more lightweight user, then we can go out and, you know, expand our TAM by two mm-hmm. or three million 
million potential customers and we can drop it into an automated funnel where they can you know, self-serve on a 14-day trial and then convert with a product qualified lead. I think there's lots of interesting opportunities. I think it depends and is different via, via vertical industry price point. So I don't want to give a, like a specific answer outside of the fact that it's not even my expertise. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, sort of in that same vein, um, if we're looking more in the like, I would say relatively early stage, right? I would think it's probably seed AB is where you're working in the more SMB <clears throat> space. Right. What are some of the like more recent things that are happening at those types of levels inside of their sales? Or uh, maybe if we go more broad revenue type of organizations, what are some of the maybe like challenges and also maybe trends or some things that are working that you're seeing with some of the companies you work with? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is actually still around marketing, to be, mm. to be quite honest. <clears throat> I think a lot of these earlier stage companies um, with lighter price points are um, thinking about go-to-market in a very sales-driven way. And as a sales leader, like that's great for me, right? That, that's more opportunities. Um, but what I tell most of my clients especially if they're at a decent price point, right? $500, $1,000 a month type of product, $10,000 ACV is they should really be looking at marketing before they look at sales. And once they look at marketing, they have to have a significant understanding of what it's really like early stage um, to, to do marketing the right way and to measure marketing the right way. And so what I see, another mistake I see is even if they decide to go marketing early stage, they go with a CEO led marketing push, which is okay. I, I can understand that, but the CEO is not, doesn't have a mark, you know, a history in marketing or experience in marketing. And so you've got someone behind the scenes pulling a bunch of levers without a true understanding of what they do. Meanwhile, they've got an experienced, expensive VP of sales sitting there waiting for leads. When in my opinion, it should be the reverse. It should be the CEO's first hire is that, is that experienced marketer. And then experienced mm -hmm. marketer's job is to generate good, high quality pipeline. And once you can do that in a predictable way, and that experienced marker un should understand how to measure all those different funnels, mm -hmm. that is when you bring in the sales leader, in my opinion. The mm -hmm. reason that executive sales leaders have an average tenure of 16 months is not because they don't know what they're doing or not because they're the wrong hire, but oftentimes they just walk into an environment where they're not actually set up to sell because the, the go-to-market strategy is incorrect. So I see I a totally lot of that. Agree. The reason that the tenure is low for sales, the company doesn't respect or understand marketing, which is critical to success in this decade and will be forever going forward. Um, that one, unrealistic goals are the the two that I kind of like point to. I see that a lot happening <clears throat> too. Um, to get back onto this one, in, um, in marketing and early stage SaaS companies, I also find that there is a tremendous amount of unrealistic expectations of what the results should be. And mm -hmm. the time frame of when it should occur is something that as I interact with more of these, I, I see it. Um, the idea that you would create more results through a marketing execution than you would if you hired an, a farm of SDRs and salespeople, I think is hard. I think it's like unrealistic. But we, you know, we work with some companies where we get pressure to deliver results on their 60 day sales cycle in 90 days. Um, yeah. 
That's that's interesting. That's interesting. I, I'd be I'd be curious to toss it back to you and, and ask yeah. what why do you think that is? Like, why, is it is it just lack of patience? Is it wanting to see a return on investment on their dollar faster? Is it is it that the CEOs aren't educated on how long it takes to to stand up a marketing program? What are what are you generally seeing when that happens? I'd be curious. I think it's um, it's truly a lack of understanding of what marketing actually does. Mm. And so therefore, when you don't have that understanding, what most CEOs will think of marketing, maybe because of how what their investors communicate or because of all the propaganda that's coming on from MarTech vendors, as well as, you know, companies like mine, um, are that marketing is more like a SDR function is how they see it. So they see it mm. as if a, a, just a million stream of leads is going to come in and some, and, a lot of companies will do that. There are competitors of ours that will get you the huge stream of leads that are terrible and don't become customers. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. um, I think it's that the idea, you know, you see all these like charts that are going up with these rocket ships and things like that, where people that don't have an understanding about the mechanics of it um, can really get caught up. We work with companies with longer sales cycles, 90 days, 120 days, for instance, where we're hitting like real stride of impact of revenue in the fourth quarter of working together. It takes time to go from stale pipeline to full pipeline that moves through. It doesn't happen yeah. on day one. And so I, I think also it's interesting because when you do that, right, <clears throat> I think people only look at what comes through the funnel on the first pass. So essentially, like my, my thought around marketing is let's say you drive a massive amount of awareness marketing and, you know, a bunch of people start learning more about your business. Maybe you have a solution that no one even knows about or knows, knows exists. You start getting this, this massive awareness. Some people come through the funnel and in the first sort of pass, let's call it, you get some buyers, you get early adopters, early movers, right? As that awareness continues to move forward and it goes from being uh, first movers to being more common, you're going to get a second sort of larger wave of people that come through and funnel metrics should improve on the second pass, right? But that might be further into the future. Your your sales cycle doesn't dictate how people decide to buy your product, right? Just because you say, I have a 60-day sales cycle doesn't mean that it automatically takes all consumers 60 days to make a decision about your product, right? There's going to be a lot of people that come through the first pass and close loss. They never end Mm -hmm. up buying your product in the first pass. But six months later, when they see 30 of their competitors using your product, right? They go through a second or a third pass and end up coming through. What's the attribution, right? (laughs) It's it's the first pass of marketing that you did 12 months ago, right? That initially got them into the funnel to be learning about what you did. And so I don't necessarily think about like, hey, we've got a 30-day sales cycle. So let's hire this agency and let's see what they can do for us in 30 days. Because I think that would be unrealistic. Yeah, totally. And then I thought while you were talking, I thought about um, another reason why these types of like unrealistic expectations happen is because a company will raise a series A and then in order to get to their B, they're going to need to 4X their revenue from 5 to 20. Mm-hmm. And they know that just by increasing headcount of sales, they will never get there. They know that. And so whatever is left over needs to fall on marketing and it must get done within the next 18 months before they run out of money. And that's mm-hmm. why you start. So there's a, there's a, a dynamic where you don't actually understand what's required. You must, you're in like, you know, a real you really need it to work within a certain period of time. And those two things competing create a lot of problems, to be honest. Yeah. And and I also think that 
people misunderstand the amount of iteration that goes into a really successful sales and marketing relationship. Mm -hmm. So, so for example, let's say you bring on a high quality marketer or a high quality agency, right? And they start to push through a sig. Let's just say you see a 30% increase in what you might call lead volume or MQL mm -hmm. volume or however your your whatever, you know, the words you're using to measure your marketing. <laughs> and, you know, th those things start coming through. And I think what's really important is anytime that you bring in a new marketer, anytime that you bring in a new agency, there's going to be new tactics, new messaging, new land. There's going to be a lot of changes, right? And so generally when you change things, some things will go well and some things will go poorly. It is not your job to determine whether iteration one was like this is now the right thing. It's to go through and say, okay, let's isolate all the different channels that things came in through. Let's isolate all the different stages that people went through. Let's understand which channels and which stages went well and which ones went poorly. Let's create hypotheses around why those things happened. Let's dig into the data. Let's get a quantitative analysis of it. Let's go and ask our team. Let's get a qualitative analysis of it. Let's make some adjustments and let's try again. Because that's what marketing and sales really is, is continue improvement throughout mm -hmm. the lifetime of a company, the idea that somehow everything is going to go, you know, perfectly well in your first 30 days is a land of dream thinking. Mm -hmm. And I just, I know it's put on by heavy pressure from VCs and capital and runway and all those different things, but it doesn't make it, doesn't change the fact that that's how it works. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what, what's pivot? There's a, there's a new topic. I actually haven't talked a lot about it. You had, you had introduced it a little bit with what gravy is doing mm -hmm. because it's not, it's not only for them and for the companies, for the people that are listening that don't know gravy, feel free. You've probably seen them on LinkedIn. There's a ton of employees posting. Um, I don't exactly know what they do and I'm going to butcher it. So I won't say it, but, um, they, they are recruiting with at a high rate through LinkedIn mm -hmm. and, not using recruiters and are able to bring people in that are also active on LinkedIn. Um, we're honestly seeing that impact as well. We've been able to hire very talented, um, very experienced demand marketers because people appreciate our, our strategy and point of view, as well as they are way more aware of us than anyone else that they could go and work for. Um, so would love to hear, I know that you had done that back in the day when you were running sales, like um, wh where's the opportunity for people in this one and how should they be thinking about it, right? Because for a normal CEO or for a normal anyone that needs to recruit would be like, go, let's go get a recruiter. Uh, this is mm -hmm. not worth my time. <clears throat> um, and so how, what would you kind of, based on your experience, I know you've had success with this. What would you say to kind of like flip the perspective of maybe this is a good thing to do? Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's very similar to what we were talking about earlier, where you can have these folks online who have massive awareness dri driving your customer awareness. You do the same with employee and recruiting awareness, right? It's no different. It's literally exactly the same thing. So, for example, I'll use myself as an example. You know, I hired Kevin Dorsey. Um, I think in I think in 2018, uh, maybe it might have been late 2017. But um, you know, Kevin has a really nice following online. He's a well-respected sales leader. Um, he put he puts out really great content. He's got a good audience. And I was generating my own at that, at that time and between the two of us, like we were creating pretty regular content. And then when we got, you know, Sam Lewis and Derek Jankowski and a few other folks involved in creating some content as well, uh, the quantity of candidate went up. Yes. But the quality of the candidate like came through and here were some of the qualitative things that we heard, right? We heard like, really want to work with KD, really want to work with Justin, really want to work with Derek, like love what you guys put out there. And what it, what it really shows is when you have leaders who are producing, and again, I'm going to use a term I don't like, thought leadership content, it, 
it shows people that you're going to learn things inside of the organization. Mm-hmm. And a lot of high caliber, high powered salespeople, they want to make money, of course, they want to do well, but they really want to learn. They want to grow personally. And so from the outside, looking from kind of looking at the outside, the shell of the company, if they see intelligent, thoughtful content coming from its leaders, Mm -hmm. they have a hypothesis that inside and internally, those those things must be going on. So that helps uh, attract people. I think also um, don't overlook the connection aspect. I'll give you an example. Uh, A guy I know named Sean Shrecky just started at Gravy um, as a senior account executive. I worked with him 10 years ago, maybe at ZocDoc, maybe maybe eight years ago. And he got connected with Gravy through Scott Lease, who got connected with Gravy through LinkedIn. I've never actually met Scott personally, we, but we hosted a Thursday night show together. So Scott rang me and said, do you know Sean Shrecky? And I said, yeah, the guy's great. And he's like, great, I'm going to put him in Gravy. And it's like this whole connected world that doesn't exist if you don't make those connections, if mm. you don't create that content, if you don't put yourself out there. People think about those first degree things happening. I've had so, I've placed multiple senior revenue executives into my portfolio companies that I've just been introduced to and vetted through my, my network on LinkedIn. It's super powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For people that are listening, I'm going to compare the candidate experience to a marketing or a marketing and sales level. And so there is a traditional outbound, both sales or recruiting. You go outbound, you can be more targeted the success rate is going to be low. And a lot of those people have never heard of you. And so you might not get the exact person that you want that's fully bought into your culture and things like that. You can also go into the um, traditional inbound model, which is post a job and wait for someone to find it. And you're most likely going to get in, in a marketing perspective, you're going to get unqualified SMB leads a lot. And in a job posting, you're going to get unqualified less, less experienced than you want people that are not bought in. Or you can go with the one that's working very well for both recruiting and for marketing, which is to go out and create content and distribute it in the places that people live right now, which is LinkedIn. It could be a podcast. Twitter seems to be picking up a lot. Um, Facebook groups, I actually see being quite successful as well. The key is that you need to go out with content um, and so I've never said that before, but it's interesting how you had mentioned that both streams, whether it's trying to generate revenue or trying to get people to work for you can, can both work that way. And in your, your world must be quite similar to mine, considering that you and I both create regular content. We both have pretty large followings on, on LinkedIn. In my experience, when a portfolio company in my advisory business says, hey, we'd like to talk to X person, he or she is really good at customer success or marketing and we, we'd love an introduction. Do you happen to know them by any chance? There's like a 90% chance that I know that person, right? Or, it, or let's not say 90 that I know them, but 90% chance that I could reach out to them and say, hey, I have a portfolio company that thinks what you do would be really well aligned with their business. Would you mind having a conversation with them and mm-hmm. get a yes nine out of 10 times? And so I can I can only imagine that works the same for you, Chris, which is you you reach out to someone you want to have an, interested, an interesting conversation with. They've seen your your podcast. They've watched your videos on LinkedIn. They're so, you're someone that they follow and they probably say, you know, hell yeah, would be my guess. Mm-hmm. I would say 99% success rate. <laughs> I did it this morning with an SVP. So, um, cool, man. So 
at this point of the episode, we'll go, I think you've been on here before, so you know what's coming, but we'll flip the script. If you got a topic that you want to ask me about and we can go back and forth on that, we'd love to do that now. Yeah, it would be, it would be interesting. Like I'd like to, to hear your perspective because let's, I use you as an example a lot when I talk to people about um, creating really good content on LinkedIn and um, you do what I, I call, you throw rocks at enemies real well, which is like, and when I say, when I say enemy, when I say enemies, I mean the traditional old ways of thinking about marketing becomes the enemy and you throw rocks at that really well. And you, you poke holes in that and you get people aligned with your vision of marketing. And because you do that, you have a close knit tribe of followers who believes what you believe. My question is what's coming next? Meaning you, you've kind of said the old way of marketing with just putting a bunch of crappy leads in the top of the funnel that doesn't work anymore. And Mm -hmm. now it's more ungated, massive awareness. It's some of the stuff that we talked about earlier. How's marketing changing in the next, you know, five years? What do you see? Yeah. So, so for a little context to people, this is a common strategic narrative play. Drift has done it very well. There's a lot of B2B tech SaaS brands that do it very well. Old way, new way, no forms, go to chatbots or whatever you want to do. Ours, you know, we have multiple pillars. And the reason that we have the pillars is because I'm in enough of these companies to know that it truly is broken. And so when I say that your ebook downloads convert at less than 0.1%, they feel it because mm-hmm. the data is right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that type of narrative has been going well. I continue to talk about it because most companies don't change, haven't changed it yet. And so until things have actually moved, I will continue. I think when you take a step back, things move a lot slower than you than we think. Right. I've been talking about getting rid of, you know, top of funnel lead gen type of activities that don't convert into customers for five or seven years. Right. And we're, and I'm still talking about it because it doesn't change that much. Um, I think that the thing that I'm trying to change at the beginning, which is seeing people move, is on the mindset of what marketing is. Mm. Because what marketing in B2B companies right now is a, is a, uh, entry point to sales as a lead gen contact acquisition SDR comp, right? So if we can change the mindset of what marketing actually is, we want to teach people something. We want to create awareness. We want to have people consider our product. We want to have them understand the features that we have that are differentiated from other ones while products become commoditized. And we want to do that before they get into a demo. We don't want to shove them into a demo so we can try and tell them that. And so those are the, some of the ideas that I'm trying to push people to think about in marketing right now, which creates more inbound volume that actually become customers. So at the mindset level, we're trying to change that. The tactic level is probably where, where we're going to get some um, progress here on your question, right? So right now for B2B companies, I think if you're looking purely organic, it's LinkedIn and podcast. And if you're looking at paid, it's Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you know, a lot of companies will still buy Google ads. I think they're ridiculously overpriced for the outcome. Um, it's incredibly competitive. It's very mature. It's overpriced. Um, and so if you can win in other channels, I think you could actually reduce your li- quote unquote liability or cost inside of Google ads. Um, I think where we will move and you can start to see it happening right now, we're doing it. I think that you're sort of doing it in some ways too, is like off, um, offset communities for lack of a better way to say it. So community generation outside of social, like, so not in a LinkedIn group, in a in a place where you could have sort of own, like we do it on Zoom, you know, Bravado is doing one, you're doing it in certain places. And so I see that type of idea where people believe in a certain thing and go there for quality information that helps them get better is I think something that's going to continue to evolve over time. And it's a lot of the other things that I 
I talk about. I think that companies should really consider their idea about the influencer, as much as I don't like that word, key opinion leader influencer strategies and how you can get the CFO of American Express involved in creating content for your business. I think that is an incredible opportunity in all levels. It doesn't have to be the CFO of American Express either. There are plenty of people that have a lot of awareness that are SDRs and you're trying to go after SDRs and those people would be the best. Um, and so influencer style things, and then just trying to get people to really get off of a lot of the, the traditional things. I think we'll see what happens with events. My expectation is that companies go right back to where they started in terms of events when they're back. I don't think that companies, it's really, uh, how do I say this? It's, it's, it, it hurts me to think about the idea that we've, we'll be in this situation for probably at least two years before we go to a major physical event over and over and over again, like we did before. And that inside of those two years, you have not innovated enough to find something that works better than going back to that event. Yeah. That's a really interesting takeaway. I <clears throat> I'm, I'm again, and I don't, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but I'm so with you on this sort of like key opinion leader um, marketing, which is mm -hmm. you, you give them, you give a traditional marketing leader, whatever, 400 K a year as an overall total earnings around, I don't know, 350, whatever, 500, pick, pick your number. And, and then you have to give them a lead budget and uh, excuse me, like a, like an expense budget, right? Mm -hmm. So they go out and they spend on marketing. Imagine hiring someone for that same amount of money and then saying, go write content like you normally do for your audience that you normally write for. And there's no additional lead spend or cost on that, on that, uh, person mm -hmm. that that person can generate, in my opinion, such a significant amount of revenue with such a low customer acquisition cost that I would, if I were building a business tomorrow, a first couple of hires that I would make would be people with significant influence. Mm -hmm. And so that's just, I, I think that's a massive missing part. And um, I think the companies that are catching on are companies like, like I mentioned fast, and that's why they closed in $102 million series B yesterday. Mm -hmm. And if one of the reasons. I talk about this a lot when they're, um, you don't see it when it's right in front of you, it is happening right now, but you only see it when you look back seven years from now, right? So everyone will see if they look that Amazon built their business on Google search ads from 2000 and maybe 1998 to 2007. Um, HubSpot was built purely on SEO. They still do it, but they've already created such amount of a brand that they don't actually, that people are coming through word of mouth and overall brand awareness now, but the initial build of that company to hundred million was on SEO. Salesforce was on predictable revenue. Um, I, there's a couple B2C companies that were purely on Facebook ads. There's plenty of B2C companies that were purely on Instagram influencers like Gymshark. And we will be in the midst of things like that happening in B2B right now on LinkedIn and Twitter and places like that. But you don't see it while it's happening. You only see it when you look back. That's right. It's great. Great, great takeaway. Yeah, it's really good. Cool, man. It's been a pleasure to have you. Always love catching up with you. Um, pumped about your new house. It looks beautiful. I can't wait to come Thanks. down there. I hear there's a boat too. Are we going to ride in that thing? No, no, no boat for me, man. No, no boat for me. That's, that's gotta be someone else. I don't, uh, I, I, uh, it's like the, my uncle had a boat. It's like the worst expense he ever had in his life. And so I learned uh, from a very early age, don't have a boat, but would love to, uh, would love to have you down here, man. It would be, uh, it'd be great to show people Nashville when, um, when this thing, when this COVID thing ends, because mm -hmm. I've seen a few restaurants and a few interesting things, but my wife and I haven't even really had a chance to explore the city the way that we want to, of course. So, so that's been super frustrating, but fingers crossed that it'll change. And, um, you know, 
have you have you down here and uh, go back to doing things in person like we did in LA. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed, man. Always a pleasure to see you. Happy to be on the show and uh, talk to you soon. Chris, thanks, man.